This morning, our gospel reading is going to come from Matthew's gospel. For Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10, I invite you to stand as you are able, in body or in spirit, for the reading of our gospel lesson. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples, He has been raised from the dead. And indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, I promise you I'm not going to sing. I'll give you my word. There will be no singing done by me in this sermon. Maybe some hollering, but no singing. This piano has been in my family for I don't even know how long. A very long time. It, uh, I think uh, I have perfect pitch, as you know. And I believe it, don't, it sounds a little off tuning-wise to me, Tim. Am I... Yeah, a little, little, little smidge. We might need to get it tuned after, after the service today. This, this piano's been in my family for a very long time. This was my Mama Sarah's piano. I, I don't know exactly uh, when she got it. I always thought for the longest time she got it when she was in Ecuador, when she was born in Ecuador. But I don't, looking back now, trying to do some research on it, I don't think that's right. I think, I think she actually got this piano. They moved back from Ecuador, and, and my, her mother, my mom, was working in New Orleans to support the family, and she was living back in Bogachetta with my granny. I think that's where, I think that's when she got it. And I have some pictures of her when she was very little, standing at this piano and playing it. This was one of her toys. This is one of her things that she played with when she was little. It's been in my family going back that long. And then, and then as my parents got me, adopted me after she died, was killed. Uh, I then had this piano. And so there are pictures of me as a very young boy. Y'all know my musical talent is legendary. There were, there were pictures of me as a small child playing this piano, just like she did. Then, as Holly and I married and we had kids, my children have sat or stood at this piano and Played it as well when they were young as a toy. And, and even now, this piano, for some reason, lives in our dining room. I'm not sure how it wound up in our dining room, but that's where it seems to live now is in there. And uh, we had friends over the other night, and as we were playing and laughing, I noticed somebody was down there tapping at the keys at this piano these many years later. This piano has been, like I said, in my family for a very, very long time. It's not worth much. You, you, you can pick it up and see. It's kind of, kind of flimsy. It's not made of the finest mahogany wood. It's, you know, probably plastic. 
probably couldn't get a whole lot for it. It has no real monetary value. But it has an enormous amount of sentimental value to me. My mom played with it. I played with it. My kids have played with it. It's been played with by so many children in my family throughout the years. So this is a very precious toy to me that's been handed down, and I hope one day maybe even hand it down to future generations. Who knows? You know, we've all got things like that, don't we? We've all got heirlooms. You know you do. This morning, uh, before early service, I talked to two or three people whose children were wearing Easter gowns that they themselves wore at Easter. I've done baptisms of children who were baptized in gowns that their parents were baptized in. I remember I had one baptism. Of this. They waited a long time to baptize the kid, and they could barely cram him into the gown. <laughs> you know, the back was open like a hospital gown. You know, you know, I've seen that. You know, somebody drove into church with a car that's been their family for a long time. We have these heirlooms. Some of y'all got gran, gra, some of y'all got Granny's china. You know it. And if you don't have Granny's china, you know you want Granny's china. You know, you've you've already eyeballed it and marked it. You know, we have these heirlooms, these things that are precious to us, that that have that sentimental value that have been in our family for generations. And maybe things that we have now that will be in our family for generations. But see, here's the thing about heirlooms. Do you think in the moment that Granny bought her china, she was thinking, hmm, one day this is going to go to my great-great-grandchildren. I don't know, maybe. Probably not, though. So I've heard stories of people proposing marriage. And they gave their wife the wedding band that their grandmother wore. You think granddaddy was thinking about giving that ring one day to a future granddaughter-in-law? Probably not. I don't think when my mama bought this piano for Mama Sarah years ago, she, she didn't envision this being a prop in a sermon one day in Madison, Mississippi in the year 2023. No, that's not, that's not the way. I don't think we think about heirlooms like that. I don't think the sentimental things in our life that we purchase or that we have when we first got them, I don't think we attributed to them the value that they would have one day as the years pass by and as life passes by and as things become more and more precious and more and more sentimental. We live, y'all, quite often, so often, in just the moment of time we find ourselves in, don't we? We're, we're, we're creatures of the immediate, We're creatures of this moment. We sometimes look at things in such a finite way that we don't see the potentiality of what could happen or what may happen or what value something may have years from now, not because of wise investment, but because of emotional connection. We don't always play the long game, y'all. We don't always play the long game. During Lent, we have spent time talking about the devil. We, we've preached a sermon series on what the Bible actually says about the devil. What does God's word actually say about Satan or Lucifer? Not what does Facebook say about the devil. And not what you read on the internet about what it says about the devil. But what does God's word actually say about the devil? We read how he is not co-equals with God. On the world flow chart, God and the devil are not equal. 
God is the sovereign God of heaven through which no one can question and no one can thwart. God is God, okay? The devil is not. The devil is not God's equal. Now, he would like for you to think that he is. He would like that. That would please him very much if you give him too much power. Because, y'all, as we said, we have often made God too small and the devil too big. Nothing can stop the plans of God. God has no equal. God has nothing greater than him. Nothing is a threat to God. He is God, y'all. Okay? He's God. There's nothing as big as God, nothing as powerful as God. And we've got to realize that. Because sometimes we, we make mountains out of molehills, and we think things are bigger than God, and we get afraid and scared. Y'all, we serve a God who turned back death, Okay? We serve a God who the grave cannot contain. There is nothing as big as God, nothing as great as God, nothing as powerful as God, okay? We got to start believing that. We got to stop being afraid of our own shadow. We got to stop being mad at everything and afraid of everything. Y'all, I read the back of the book. I know who wins. I'm not afraid and I'm not scared because my God is greater and nothing can stop him. We make our God too small and our devil too big sometimes. But we see the devil. We see that he is not God's equal. He's simply a fallen angel. You know what I think, y'all? You know what I think? I think the devil's kind of like us sometimes, though. I think he lives in the immediate I don't think the devil plays a long game. I think he lives in the immediate. See, because here's what I think, y'all. I think the devil, on Good Friday, thought he won. I think on Good Friday, the devil thought he won. I think he thought that he had defeated God. I think he thought that he finally had revenge for Genesis 3. You know Genesis 3, don't you? That's where Adam and Eve fall. And in Genesis 3, God curses Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And he says to Eve and to the serpent, he curses the serpent, and he says to, 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 Eve, to Eve how he would put enmity between offspring. But in Genesis 3, the devil was cursed by God after he tricked Adam and Eve, after he led them into sin. He was cursed by God and condemned by God. And now I think, I think on Good Friday, I think on Good Friday, he thinks he finally had his revenge. I think he thinks he finally had his revenge. And you know what? I think he wants us to think that too. I think the devil wants us to think that he actually has defeated Jesus. And that death actually does win. See, here's the thing about the devil. Here's the thing about evil. Evil thrives in darkness. Evil thrives in darkness. And the devil whispers to us, he whispers to us, come sit with me in the darkness. Come sit with me in the darkness. We talked on Palm Sunday about how the disciples had to wrestle with this. 
What happens when Jesus doesn't do what we want? And that's where the devil strikes at us the most, y'all. What do we do when the darkness strikes? What do we do when the doctor says, I have some bad news? It's malignant. What do we do when the phrase irreconcilable differences is thrown around? What do we do when the stock market crashes? And we look at our IRA and we say, ooh, will I ever get to retire? What do we do when we call our children and they don't call back? Or what do we do whenever we call our parents and they don't call back? What do we do when that person that we were friends with for years doesn't return our calls? What do we do when we feel the encroaching darkness? And that's what the devil wants you to think, that Easter's a lie. The devil wants us to think that darkness actually wins. And that's when we hear the call of the devil saying, yeah, come sit with me in the dark. Come sit with me in the dark. Come sit with me in the dark of hatred. Come sit with me in the dark of division. Come sit with me in the dark of doubt and fear. And come sit with me in the dark and let me harden your heart. Come sit with me in the dark and let me grow your fears. Come sit with the dark and let, let, let's live in this darkness, in this cynicalness. Let's live here. That's what the devil wants for us, y'all. That's what the devil wants. That is the, that is the ultimate victory the devil desires. The devil knows ultimately that he cannot defeat God. So he'll take the next best thing. He'll destroy us. He'll destroy us. But he doesn't do it with sound and fury. He does it with whispers. Come sit with me in the dark. Let's give into those worst impulses. Let's give into that. Because what's it matter anyway? What's it matter anyway? But here's the thing, y'all. And like the devil, and unlike us that live in the momentary, just like our heirlooms, God's playing the long game. Because, yes, we see that the devil thinks on Good Friday that he has achieved revenge for Genesis 3. What we actually see on Good Friday and what we actually see on Easter is the fulfillment of Genesis 3. Because when you read Genesis 3, you see this. God says to Eve, I will place enmity between you and the serpent and between your offspring and his. And one day, an offspring of yours will crush the head of the serpent. Y'all, that is what Jesus did on Good Friday. And that is what he does on Easter. What the devil thinks was his victory was actually his great defeat because on the cross and in the empty grave, Jesus Christ crushed the head of the serpent. 
And the devil wants us to think that darkness wins. The devil wants us to think that hatred wins. The devil wants us to think that cynicism wins. The devil wants us to think that this single moment wins. And it does not, y'all. We have a God who's playing the long game. And on Easter, the power of sin was broken. On the cross, Jesus Christ atoned for your sins. You are forgiven. The blood of the cross has paid the price for your sins. You are forgiven. The devil wants you to sit in the darkness and think you are not forgiven. The devil whispers to you, how can he forgive you? Don't you know what you've done? He wants you to live in the darkness with him. He wants you to live in the darkness and live in the cynicism of unforgiveness. And God's calling us into the light, into the glorious light of our Father, saying, no, you are forgiven. Not because of what you've done, not because of your righteousness, not because of your goodness, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Not in my name, not in your name, but in Jesus' name, you are forgiven. It's not Andy plus Jesus equals salvation. It's Jesus equals salvation. It's not Andy plus Jesus equals forgiveness. It's Jesus equals forgiveness. You are forgiven. Now the devil, he's going to tell you, no, you're really not. But you are. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins, and the blood of Jesus are forgiven. In the cross, you have been forgiven. In the empty grave, you have been restored. Because it isn't just, y'all, it isn't just that our sins are forgiven, but it's the fact that our life is restored. As Holly said in the children's moment, in Jesus Christ, she became a new person. In Jesus Christ, I became a new person. And so the devil, once again, he wants to whisper, hey, 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 come sit in the darkness with me. You're never going to change. <laughs> do you really? Do you really think you're going to change? What's wrong with you? No, 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 no. You're not going to change. I know who you are. After all, a leopard doesn't change her spots, do they? You're never going to change. Nah. Just come sit in the darkness with me. Just come sit in the darkness with me. The devil doesn't want us to play the long game. He doesn't want us to see that God meant what he said. That God not only will forgive, but God will redeem and God will restore and God will bring forth new life. That's what God does. Remember, the devil is a liar. If his mouth is moving, he is lying. Evil wants you to think it's one, y'all. Darkness wants you to think it's one. Death wants you to think it's one, but we do not live in fear of death anymore because the grave has been overcome. Your sin has been forgiven and the grave has been defeated and we are no longer bound by fear, but we live in light. We are not fear-based. We are light-based. And if we plant our feet in the land of fear, we are getting into the dark and we are sitting beside the devil. We are not planted in fear. We are planted in life because we are Christians.
That is who we are, and that is what the world needs, y'all. The world needs Jesus. But if we're so afraid and so angry that we cannot love, they will never know Jesus. Because how will they know if we do not tell? Beautiful are the feet that bring the gospel of good news. It's what God's word says. The devil wants us planted in darkness in fear. And God calls us forth into his glorious light. Because here's the thing. Sin has been atoned for. Death has been defeated. Because God has given us the power to choose. I want to read to you a quote by one of my favorite writers. She was a 14th century mystic by the name of Julie of Norwich. She lived in England. And she, wrote the, she had these powerful encounters with Jesus. When Jesus would come to her, she was praying in a cave. And Jesus would physically appear to her. And she would have conversation with Jesus. And she recorded these conversations. And they're some of the most powerful writings in Christian history. But Julia records this conversation with Jesus. She says, <clears throat> In my folly, before this time I often wondered why, by the great foreseeing wisdom of God, the own sin of sin was not prevented. You ever wonder that yourself? Why, why did God give us choice? Why did God let that dumb snake come out there and everything go to ruin after that? Was not the onset of sin prevented? For then I thought, all should have been well. If only they hadn't messed up the garden, all would have been well. This impulse of thought was much to be avoided, but nevertheless I mourned and sorrowed because of it, without reason or discretion. But Jesus who in this vision informed me of all that is needed by me, answered with these words and said, It was necessary that there should be sin, but all shall be well, and all things shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. These words were said to me most tenderly, showing that no matter the blame to me or to any who shall be saved. God was playing the long game. Scripture says that Jesus Christ was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. God gave us free will. He gave us free will. And in giving us free will, he gave us the ability to choose. And yes, we chose sin. But God was determined to not let sin get the final story, but gave us Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and to restore our life. And so sin was necessary in that God allowed us to fall. Yes, he allowed us to fall. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. He gave us choice. And yes, we chose wrong, but God was not going to allow our wrong choices to keep us separated from him because God was determined, even in our choices, to give us the chance to choose forgiveness. The chance to choose righteousness. The chance to choose light. Friends, you have a choice. You can listen to the voice of the devil and sit in the darkness. That is your choice. God has given you that choice. You can sit in the darkness. You can sit in the hate. You can sit in the cynicism. You can sit in the anger. You can sit in the hatred. That is your choice, and you can make it. That is your choice to make. Or you can choose to come to the light, 
to enter into the glorious power of redemption and grace and forgiveness and mercy and life that our God has for us. God is playing the long game. My parents didn't have any plan for value in this piano. They bought it years ago. But God had a plan for your redemption. God had a plan for your forgiveness. God had a plan for your salvation and for the salvation of the world. God had a plan for you to not sit in darkness. No matter the lies of the devil, to not sit beside him in darkness, but to come out into light and forgiveness where you are forgiven and you are redeemed and you are restored, not through your efforts, but through the effort and the victory of Jesus Christ. He has given us that choice. He has given us that power. He has given us that path. So what voice will we listen to? The voice whispering, come. Come sit beside me in the darkness. Come sit beside me in the darkness. Or the voice that says, no, no, beloved. Come into the light where all shall be well and all manner of things shall be made well because Christ is risen and death is defeated and sin is atoned for because of the power of our God. Today, friends, will you come out of the darkness Will you join me in the light of our Savior? And may we live in the power of resurrection. Let us pray.